Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. My name is Emily Feta, and this is a brand new podcast where we talk about all things cannabis and science. If you've ever walked into a dispensary and wish you had a scientist on speed dial while you're trying to choose between hundreds of products, or if you're just curious about some of the claims being made about CBD and whether the research substantiates them, this is the podcast for you. We interview a range of scientists across the fields of neuroscience, psychology, medicine, and biology who are working in the field and doing real research on cannabis. We cover topics like, how can cannabis help with my anxiety? How soon can I drive after smoking a joint? What are terpenes and how do they affect us? What is the difference between an indica and a sativa? What level of THC can our bodies actually metabolize? How can patients with epilepsy seem to respond to cannabis when nothing else works? So if you've ever wondered about these questions or so many more, stay tuned. We have a fascinating series ahead of us where we interview very curious researchers within the field, and they offer so much knowledge and wisdom about cannabis as a plant and what it can do for us as humans and as a society. This episode was made possible by a generous donation from Mason Jar Events. Mason Jar Events puts on unique experiences that unite Colorado's finest indulgences, farm-to-table meals, and seasonal beverages, all thoughtfully paired with choice cannabis strains. You can check out some of their upcoming events at masonjareventgroup.com. Today we're featuring Dr. Daniela Vergara, who is an evolutionary biologist researching cannabis genomics at the University of Colorado Boulder. In addition to her multiple publications on cannabis, she founded and directs the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, which aims to make cannabis science available to a broader public. This organization is also one of our partners for this podcast. In this episode, We talk about how biology and how understanding the cannabis genome could be very beneficial to breeding efforts and to creating cannabis medicine that is more consistent and more effective for patients. If you don't know what a genome is, please keep listening. We will break it down. And we're also going to talk about some of the nomenclature used to define cannabis and some of the subcategories within cannabis and how this, these naming practices might differ from some of the names that you're familiar with um, if you shop at a local dispensary. So if you really want to get educated on the cannabis plant, this is a great episode for you. We talk about the differences between an indica and a sativa. We talk about the scientific definitions of hemp and cannabis, as well as the political definitions of hemp and cannabis. And We talk about some of the disparities between naming practices within the cannabis industry and then within the scientific community, but this episode is really not demonizing. We are not criticizing anyone at all. We're just acknowledging some of these differences and how we can really integrate some of the scientific research into the mainstream lexicon. Daniela, thanks so much for coming onto the show. Thank you very much for having me, Emily. So 
Tell me more about your path as an evolutionary biologist. How did you end up studying the cannabis genome? So um, when I moved to Colorado from Indiana, where I did my PhD, um, I was originally going to work on sunflower genomics, but given that Colorado was legalizing, that was 2013 and Colorado legalized in 2014. So given that it was legalizing, then um, I jumped from sunflowers to cannabis. Cool. That's a pretty big jump. So what did we know? So it sounds like it was probably kind of the Wild West at that point, and we didn't have a lot of information about cannabis um, in the scientific literature. So what do we know about the cannabis genome compared to other plants, like potentially perhaps sunflowers? Okay, so first I'm going to define what a genome is. So um, a genome is the whole conglomerate of DNA, so the whole genetic material from an organism. And so I studied the whole collection of DNA from an organism. Now, for different species, for example, us humans, we know very well where different genes are within the genome. For cannabis right now, we don't have that information and we are trying to piece the genome together. So for us, for humans, we have all of the DNA into different pieces because we have 23 chromosomes. So we have all of the 23 different chunks. For cannabis, it's still very fragmented and we do not have it in the 10 different pieces because cannabis has 10 chromosomes. We still have it in multiple different pieces. So we're working on um, getting those 10 pieces together. So I've heard in the media that this scientific research and scientific knowledge that we have of cannabis is about 100 years behind traditional agriculture. So kind of with that, with that understanding, what do we know about cannabis as a plant? Okay, so cannabis is uh, a flowering plant, so it's an angiosperm. Um, it is from the family Cannabiaceae, so its closest relative existing relative is hops. Um, cannabis is an annual plant, so it usually lives and dies every year. However, there is individuals in tropical and subtropical climates that live more than a year. It is a wind-pollinated plant, so uh, pollen travels through the wind, and it is dioecious. So males and female plants are found in different plants. However, there's monoecious populations, so hermaphrodites, that also exist. So in cannabis, we have males, females, and hermaphrodites. So today in Colorado, um, where we're both based, you can walk into a number of dispensaries and purchase cannabis. And typically they're kind of divided into two broad subgroups. So you might go into a dispensary and um, ask if you can get a, an indica or a sativa. And I'm wondering if these are real scientific groupings. Are these really um, the groupings that are used in scientific taxonomy to define different um, subtypes of cannabis? Okay, so indica and sativa. So in 1753, Linnaeus 
Um, he classified cannabis sativa um, from hemp individuals that were growing in Europe. Sativa, the word sativa means cultivated. So he probably was very familiar with the hemp that was cultivated in Europe. Um, and then in 1785, Lamarck um, named this other grouping cannabis indica from individuals that he found in India. Um, and right now, still, it's considered as one species, Cannabis sativa L, and the L comes from Linnaeus, um, and still, so we consider it one species. Mm -hmm. So these two different groupings um, are questionable in taxonomy. Okay, so it sounds like Lamarck kind of came into the picture and thought that he was discovering a new species, but we kind of, it sounds like we kind of know now that that's not the truth. And, and what evidence do we have suggesting that cannabis indica and cannabis sativa are not actually two separate species? So I think that they interbreed. Mm -hmm. So right now we know that these different groupings um, can interbreed and have fertile babies. So we think that it's still one species. But... Um, we know that there are different groupings within um, the cannabis sativa um, genus species. So cannabis is the genus and uh, sativa would be the species. So we know that there are different groupings within um, cannabis sativa. Um, but the indica and the sativa um, might be related to the effects that people have. So people usually um, tend to think that the indicas have more of a mellow and sedative effects and the indica and the sativa, sorry, are more uplifting. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe um, the effects are what people are talking about when they talk about these different groupings within cannabis. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there's a little bit of a confusion in between um, whether that there is a correlation between the type of the plant, the grouping of the plant, and the effects that it might have on a human. Correct. Mm -hmm. um, and, and people tend to associate these names with the particular effects mm -hmm. and tend to associate these names with particular physical characteristics of the plant. So people say, for example, the sativas are tall and that the leaves are lengthy mm -hmm. and that the indicas are short and dark green and the leaves are broad, mm -hmm. but that um, not necessarily um, correlates with what people are going to feel when they consume the plant. So um, those things are independent. So mm -hmm. you can... Um, have you can have an uplifting effect independent of how the plant looks like. So if these are actually not good and accurate scientific groupings of plants, especially if you're looking at the plant's phenotypes, like its color and its shape and its size, um, but instead they're probably better groupings of how a particular variety might make someone feel, which of course can vary. So we don't want to get too attached to that. But if indica and sativa are not these real scientific or taxonomic groupings, based on your scientific research and based on the literature out there, what distinctions can we make? What subgroups of cannabis do exist? So what we've found so far is that depending on 
where and how you draw the line. You can have seven groupings or three groupings within cannabis. Um, what we find is that there is the broad leaf, the narrow leaves, and the hemp's. And the broad leaves and the narrow leaves are used in medical and recreational settings. And then the hemp's are the industrial hemp's that are used for fiber or for oil or for grain. Mm-hmm. Um, and these narrow leaves and broad leaves, um, they all have different um, effects. And then people call some of the narrow leaves sativas or indicas or some of the broad leaves sativas or indicas, but um, the naming usually does not correlate to where the plant it, to, to the relationship that these different mm-hmm. varieties have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I, I'd like to come back to that because I, I, I don't really, I, I definitely see this um, incongruency between the talk in a dispensary and the talk within, you know, in a lab or even among breeders in terms of the phenotypes of cannabis. So, so let's come back to that. But I, I'm really curious about, and, and I really also think it would be hilarious if someone walked into a dispensary and asked for a narrow leaf cannabis, <laughs> but maybe someday we'll see. Uh, but I'd like to kind of circle back and, and understand more about your research process. And, and when you're trying to figure out these subgroups of cannabis or learn more about cannabis, what is your research look like? Tell me more about your process. So what we do is that we go to different dispensaries or breeders and growers um, and uh, we extract the DNA from their plants. So they tell us the variety, whatever they name the plant, and then we do um, DNA extraction and then we sequence the whole genome and we compare all of these genomes. Um, we also uh, got a hold of genomes from other research groups that that um, that uh, they donated their genomes so we could study them. Um, so we have genomes from multiple different cannabis plants from all over the U.S. and potentially all over the world. So when you've been doing this research, what are some of the most interesting things that you found out? One of the most interesting things is the amount of variation that there is in these genomes. So cannabis has a lot of um, diversity, much more than humans, for example. So in humans... um, we have um, a more or less 1% diversity. So the letters in the genome, they differ around 1%. But in cannabis, we find that there's much more diver- diversity, like two or three times as more as humans. So I think that that is very interesting. Another thing that I found that was very interesting was um, that these varieties, so these strains, are misnamed. So we found, for example, um, Girl Scout cookies. So people call them Girl Scout cookies, but um, they are not related at all. Um, Also Jack Herrera. So we find different strains that are supposed to be Jack Herrera that that are not closely related at all. So their genomes are not, are very, very different. So they're not similar between each other. Mm -hmm. 
So it sounds like you would get one strain from potentially a dispensary in Denver and let's say another strain from a dispensary in Boulder and they were both called Girl Scout cookies, but then when you sequence the DNA, they were completely different and not even closely related. Exactly. That's exactly mm -hmm. what happened. Mm -hmm. And why do you think this is happening? Do you think this is more of an issue as, um, you know, in general that the cannabis industry hasn't agreed upon um, what the exact genetic lineage needs to be in order for a strain to be considered a Girl Scout cookie? Or do you think it's confusion am among what the actual, uh, the strain is? Do, do you have any hypothesis on to why this um, strain confusion is happening? I think that it could be due first due to all of this variation that there's in the genome, right? That it, it's extremely diverse. The plants are very diverse uh, also in their physical characteristics. So the phenotype, they are also very different. The leaf shapes, the sizes of the plants, the colors, the smells. Um, there's a lot of, of, of variation. So I think that this could make it um, difficult to properly classify the plants. But I also think that within the cannabis industry, people are naming things um, however they want. Mm -hmm. um, and they do not have proper naming conventions. Mm -hmm. And I can definitely say, so um, from working on the business side in the cannabis industry, I think there's a lot of um, desire to, to for dispensaries to kind of differentiate themselves and to have the newest, hottest strain. Um, so, so I do want to ask kind of while we're on that topic, there is so much breeding happening in the cannabis industry. And it seems like every summer there's a bunch of new concerts at Red Rocks and a new band will come in and then a dispensary will say, hey, we have this new strain for... Um, Dead and Company, like the concert coming up and it's named after like one of, you know, the drummer or something. So do you really think this breeding that's happening within the cannabis industry, are, are they really creating strains that are so different than other ones that exist if you actually were to look at the genome? So I think that that's a very interesting question because there is a lot of diversity. So they could be potentially creating new strains, um, that, that is a possibility. If we were to sequence all of these different plants, we could definitely answer that question. But I also think that if it, it could be a marketing strategy, right? Mm -hmm. If it were to me, right? And I have this strain that sold really good that people really liked, mm -hmm. then you can just change the name mm -hmm. and sell it as a different thing, right? Because of the naming conventions, because no one really knows. And, and then you can just brand it as something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the frustrations um, for patients and for consumers with this misnaming is that you can find a, a, a variety that works really well for you, and, and maybe that's Blue Dream or something. You're like, oh, this is the one. This is the one that I really like. It doesn't make me paranoid. You know, I don't think that the police are coming after me when I'm sitting in the mall. Like, um, and so this is a strain that really works for me. So you buy it from one dispensary, and then maybe you travel out to LA for the weekend, and you buy something under the same name, but it affects you in a completely different way. So, so kind of based on that, obviously we know the, the risks and the dangers of misnaming cannabis and not really understanding the genome, but um, how can this research and how can um, DNA sequencing 
potentially improve the experience for cannabis patients and consumers. And do you think there's medical uses for cannabis that we don't even know about yet? So um, the first part of that question, I yes, I, I totally agree with you that this is potentially very dangerous for medical consumers, mm -hmm. particularly, because they want reliability in what they're getting. Mm -hmm. And if they go to different dispensaries and they get, you know, that blue dream and it's a completely different thing, then their medicine is not acting reliably, you know. Right, right. But um, so what I would recommend instead is to have all of this cannabis tested for their chemotypes, for the amount of cannabinoids that they produce. Mm -hmm. So you as a medical patient instead go to a dispensary and ask for a particular chemotype. I want a, a strain, a variety that has this particular amount of THC or CBD or, or, or as many cannabinoids and, and terpenoids or as many compounds as you can get. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I could recommend is that instead you ask for how you want to feel. Mm -hmm. So I want something that makes me feel um, uplifting or that makes me um, feel mellow or that make, helps me sleep. Mm -hmm. um, and that could be um, much more helpful than asking for indica or sativa, mm -hmm. which we know that are not that, that two sativas could not be related at all, mm -hmm. or that when people say, or oh, this is 100% indica and this is 100% um, sativa, mm -hmm. they could be very closely related. And that was research that was published in 2015 by Soller and collaborators. And we also published a paper on 2016, um, and we talk about the misnamings in the cannabis industry. Cool. So I do want to go back to um, breeding for a moment. And in terms of, I think there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of understanding the cannabis genome. And there's so many different um, strains out there currently. So, but, but I'm wondering, of course, what, once, once we have more understanding and, and more information about the genomes of the cannabis plant, could there be better medical uses for it than there are now? Or could there be more medical uses for it than there are now? Yeah, potentially um, there could be many more medical uses. Um, right now, unfortunately, most of the research that has been done has been done with the cannabis that's produced by the federal government, which we know that is inferior than that produced in the private markets. And that was a paper that we ha we published in 2017 showing this disparity between the cannabis of the, um, of the federal government and how it's totally inferior from that cannabis that is consumed by, by people that it's sold at dispensaries. So I think that there could be multiple other medical uses. However, still all of these different medical uses are, are anecdotes. So right now, um, people say that cannabis is could cure from AIDS to cancer to eczema. Mm -hmm. And we not necessarily know if that is true because there's not a lot of med medical research, reliable medical research. Um, and most of these are, are anecdotes. So we really, and, and 
personally, I, I do not think that cannabis is going to be this miracle drug that's going to cure everything. But I do think that maybe paired with other conventional drugs, it could be very helpful for ma many different conditions. Mm -hmm. So right now, um, it's accepted that it's, that it's helpful for three medical conditions, for pain and um, um, nausea and vomiting um, induced by chemotherapy and spasticity in multiple sclerosis. But this is only research that has been done with this cannabis produced by the federal government and not the cannabis that is produced um, by the private markets, which is the one that people are actually consuming medically or um, recreationally. But all of that research has been done with the cannabis grown with the from the federal government. Mm -hmm. So so maybe if we were able to research with the cannabis grown at for dispensaries, then we would be able to figure out if there are more um, if there are more uses for for cannabis. Mm -hmm. Cool, that's really interesting. So it does sound like we need to have more. Um, clinical testing or controlled trials to figure out um, whether cannabis is truly effective in terms of treating certain conditions. And then once we have a better understanding of what compounds within the cannabis are responsible for uh, treating those conditions, we can research those compounds and try to figure out where in the genome, what part of the genome is responsible for the compound. Is that correct? Yes. Um, we need to figure out, for example, what are the regions of the genome responsible for the production of all of these different compounds that are the ones that um, have medical uses. So once we know uh, what are the regions of the genome that are responsible, for example, for the production of CBD um, or THC, then we can more accurately breed for particular varieties that have a particular amount of that given compound. And that would be much better for medical patients because they know um, more uh, accurately what they're consuming. Mm -hmm. Cool. That's really exciting. And I think it will be great a few years down the road once we have more information and more research. So let's go back to one of the original topics that we talked about at the beginning, the, the broad groupings for cannabis that we do have currently in the scientific literature, which are broadleaf, narrowleaf, and hemp. And specifically, um, I want to talk to you about hemp because I, I feel like it's the sexiest topic right now. And um, in 2018, obviously, um, there were some changes to the farm bill to legalize hemp at the federal level. So now we have legislation that's defining hemp as cannabis that contains less than 0.3% THC. So I'm wondering how this this legal definition of hemp differs from uh, the scientific definition that you have of hemp, especially when looked at uh, through the lens of those three categories that you mentioned at the beginning. So um, I think that that governmental definition is helping with the misnaming because um, Anything that has less than 0.3% THC is not necessarily the biological definition of hemp. And in this uh, biological hemp grouping, we have the um, varieties that are used in industrial um, 
settings like fiber or oil or grain. Um, and uh, this less than 0.3% THC is just a made up number that someone from the government decided and which is Actually, I think it's really hard to achieve that 0.3% THC mm -hmm. um, because of how these compounds are produced. And, and so I, I think that um, that 0.3% that THC is, is not helpful for, for classifying. So if you were to actually look at the genome of a hemp plant versus the genome of a narrow leaf cannabis plant, what would you find? So uh, the genome of a hemp plant, of a governmental hemp plant, yeah. or the gene? Based on your categories, based on your groupings, if I um, were to look at the, de uh, the genome of a hemp plant that scientifically categorizes as a hemp plant within your groupings, and the genome of a narrow leaf plant kind of, uh, within your scientific groupings and within the literature that's been published, what, what would I find out? How would those genomes differ? So that, that's a really interesting question because... What we've found so far is that hemp actually appears to have the most diversity. Mm -hmm. So it appears that, that the hemp grouping is the most diverse of all and overall in the genome. So we don't know what particular regions of the genome or, um, or what particular genes in the genome, but overall it seems that hemp has the most variation, which is really interesting because I think that something that could happen in the future is that we could bring variation from hemp, from this hemp grouping, this biological hemp grouping into um, the, the medical and recreational varieties. Mm -hmm. And there was a recent paper that was actually published last year, and that's what they suggest, that these high CBD strains, uh, low THC strains that are governmentally classified as hemp, quote-unquote, um, that these uh, varieties are actually bred with hemp, with, with um, the biological hemp, the, the, um, the um, industrial hemp. So it seems like it's a cross between these medical and recreational strains and the um, hemp, the biological hemp grouping. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it sounds like if I were to look at, um, and using the biological definitions right now, not the um, federal legally one, legal ones, but if I were to look at um, a hemp A versus hemp B, there would be more variety and more differences than there would be if I were to look at the genome of a narrow leaf plant A and a narrow leaf plant B. Exactly. That's exactly what's, what it's like. Yeah. Cool. So that just gives a lot more possibility for breeding under hemp versus breeding in these narrow leaf or broadleaf categories. Yes. And also to bring variation from hemp into these other um, groupings. So maybe, you know, if we were able to grow um, cannabis outdoors, um, maybe we could have, you know, extremely tall plants or, or, or something that, that hemp's have, you know, that hemp's for, for fiber, for example, that are very tall. Maybe we could bring that, those tall um, genes and, and put them into the medical or recreational um, varieties. 
Cool. That's so interesting. And I don't think this is the first time where the scientific definition of something has differed from the United States government definition of something. So I, I don't think this is necessarily so unique in the fact that, um, especially, especially I, I, I know I had a conversation with um, a hemp activist um, who was really active in DC in the 90s. And he went to um, that he went to the offices of all of these senators and all of these members of the House of Representatives and, and, and talked to them about hemp. And they really wanted to keep it separate in their mind. They wanted to kind of maintain that propaganda, you know, that reefer madness propaganda of marijuana makes you high and hemp is rope. So I, I think in order for hemp to be legalized in the U.S., I, I think it was kind of in, in the activists' best interest to create this separation in the minds of politicians. I think you're totally right. And it's funny because um, for me, you know, as a cannabis genomicist, I think as the plant, as as one, you know, and then you bring variation from one grouping into the other one, but it's one thing. But when you go f to shows or even the people that attend a hemp show or versus, you know, a cannabis expo, they're completely different types of people and they... They give you their spiel that, okay, this is different and with hemp you make soap and you don't smoke this. And mm -hmm. although now because of this hemp legal definition that it's high CBD, now you find the hemp joints mm -hmm. which are it's high legal. CBD. Yeah, yeah and, they, and they're legal. Yeah. And, and that to me is a little funny and it, it sometimes... It takes me a while to realize, like, okay, no, I'm, I'm in a hemp show, and it, mm -hmm. the people are different, and what they're talking about is a different thing. Um, and then when I go to the lab, then I can go back to my cannabis as a whole thing, you know, as a whole, yeah, species grouping, yeah. Yeah, and I think the same conversation applies to um, the indica and sativa subgroups as well. And of course, we really want to be promoting accurate science on this podcast. That's the whole point. But at the same time, I think it's important to honor what is happening in, in the industry. And I think it would be very challenging for a dispensary owner to just completely go against the grain and start, you know, lose the indica and the sativa um, categories. I think it might actually... Cause and maybe this would just be some short and it would probably be better. It might just be some short term confusion in exchange for long term understanding. But it, it might be challenging for dispensaries to market the strains without using that indica and sativa subgroup just because people are so familiar with it. Uh, yeah, that might be accurate um i would think that maybe instead of saying well this indica blah 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 or this sativa they could say um this strain that it's called whatever durban poison um it helps you eat and uh, and this other one helps you sleep so instead of saying well this indica for sure it's gonna give you couch lock and this sativa is gonna you know uh, help you with uplifting and you're gonna be able to be very creative instead of using those terms they, they could just say well this one will help you um I don't know, with your nausea. Mm -hmm. um, and they could market it that way instead. But but I don't know. That's an idea. <laughs> no, I totally agree. I just, um, yeah, I just wanted to point out that I think that this transition and putting the science, you know, putting the scientific research and information out into the mainstream might be met with some resistance for business and political reasons. 
Is it going to be even possible? I mean, I hope so. <laughs> I, I hope people care about science. <laughs> But I also, um, I, I think it's, I think there's room for both. And, and I really like your perspective about using Indica and Sativa as more of categories of how you want to feel or, or physical effects that you're seeking rather than applying them um, you know, as pseudo taxonomical terms for, for cannabis. So, so I do hope so, but, but I, I definitely think that there's room for, um, there's room for both. So, uh, yeah, that wraps it up for today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing all of your knowledge with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. And, uh, I hope that the science does make it to the dispensaries. <laughs> me too. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast, where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.